Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. As we continue our Story Time with Jesus series, this week Pastor Kenny shared one of Jesus' greatest stories from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We learn how to practically love God and love others with a rugged commitment in a dangerous world. Um, we're in the middle of a series uh, called Story Time with Jesus. How many of you guys like a good story? Stories are, are powerful, and what we've been kind of framing this in this way that I think one of the reasons why we're compelled by stories is because we're in the middle of a huge one, right? And so the story begins in the Bible, the origins, uh, or Genesis means origins of, of the story, is that God creates everything that he creates, and he says it's good, right? And then he creates a man, and he says it's not good for him to be alone. And then he creates an Ezra Konegdo, right? Uh, a, a helper and partner. And then he says that's very, very good. And then he gives them the charge to, to, to steward all of the earth. So there's this interesting part of the story that God creates this story. He begins this story and it's good, but it's not done. And then he creates people and he says, keep doing the work that I started. And that's kind of the beginning of this story. And then we know, of course, that there's a wrench in the story, right? Sin. And so sin comes in the world. Things start to spiral out of control. And then we have the story of the Bible where God is intervening in the most beautiful of ways, saving his people, getting us back on course. And just like the movie Titanic, right? The first time you watch the movie Titanic, it's three hours. And you don't know what's going to happen scene to scene. But you know that Titanic sinks, right? I didn't ruin that for anybody, right? The boat sinks at the end. And so we know the end of our story. We don't know the day today, but we know that God wins. In the end, and then in the middle of the story, that's where we live, right? And so we've been looking at this, this, uh, this series where we're looking at Jesus' parables, the stories that he told about what it looks like to live in that tension of the already that he's done, right? He already accomplished everything that we need for salvation in the not yet. He has not yet come back and made all things new. We live in the middle of that. And so today's uh, story, today's parable, is probably one of the most uh, familiar stories that Jesus told. And I would just submit that this story is about the gospel. And, and, and it's what the gospel looks like in action. Or you might say, how the gospel works. And so we have lots of pictures of this in the Bible. I work as a paramedic, and when you, when you say you have chest pain, during my assessment, I have to look at, at your chest pain from all different kinds of angles. I ask you questions, I put you on the EKG monitor, 4 lead, and then I have to put you on a 12 lead, which looks at it from all these different angles. And the Bible actually does that for us with the gospel, right? Like in Luke in Luke 8, 1, it says Jesus was, during his earthly ministry, he was going from town to town. And he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then all throughout the New Testament, we're getting more and more pictures of the gospel. Actually, in the scriptures, it says that the gospel was even proclaimed back to Abraham before Jesus even came. So the gospel is this long story of Jesus's, uh, what Jesus is going to accomplish on our behalf. And this story today is going to look at how the gospel works. Of course, 
In the scriptures, we have lots of pictures of the gospel. Like I said, Jesus proclaims it. Paul says that he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And then he gives this picture in Colossians. He says the gospel works kind of like this, that we were in the domain of darkness and he transfers us to the kingdom of light. Right, and So there's this transformation that happens. And then in Romans 12, we see that in view of this mercy of what he's done, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on in verse 2, he says, so let's not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but let's be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so I guess the big picture would be that Jesus is the hero of the gospel, that we're in this darkness story, we're in this darkness stage of the story, but Jesus came, he is the light. He transfers us to the kingdom of light, to his kingdom. That's, he goes around and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's, he's taking people out of the domain of darkness and transferring them in a moment. We're born again, transferred into the kingdom of light. And then over a lifetime, Day by day, by process, we're being transformed more and more like Jesus. And so that's a lot of angles of the gospel. But here's the thing. Sometimes a story can give you an angle of something, and it can get to places in your heart and mind that none of those other facts can get at. And I would say that's the aim of our story today. And it's found in Luke chapter 10, if you... Have your Bibles, you could turn there with me. Luke chapter 10, and as you're turning there, you need to know a couple of things uh, in order to understand this story before we begin. And the one thing is that the story is going to talk about an expert of the law. An expert of the law, which if you're a student of the Bible, he's talking about a scribe. A scribe. We would call it what? A lawyer. An expert of the law is a lawyer. This is a scribe, which is a a Jewish religious leader and also a lawyer who would pay special attention to the first five books of the Bible, right? What we call the Pentateuch, all written by Moses, the Mosaic law. That's what they would study and that's what they would be an expert at. So we have an expert of the law is a Jewish religious leader who has, is an expert in the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic law. We have a Levite and a priest, right? A Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan walk down the road. That's a joke, but but I don't know the punchline, right? But the story talks about a Levite and a priest and a Samaritan. And the Levite and the priest, you have to understand this to understand the story, were Jewish leaders that were expected to do the right thing. Right? So in our world, there's certain people who have certain positions, and you would expect them to do the right thing. Unfortunately, in our day, some of those things have deteriorated, and we might say, nothing surprises me anymore, right? Right? We have to get that out of our head in this story. They're not in the place where nothing surprises them anymore. They still hold sacred that the priest and the Levite are expected to do the right thing. Right? No one would have, no one would have believed that they might not do the right thing. It just wasn't in their mind frame. And then we have a Samaritan. Samaritans were half-breed Jews. That's how the Jews would have looked at the Samaritans. There was no love between the Samaritans and the Jews goes way back to, to David and Solomon's time where this kind of beef started. But at the time when Jesus is talking, the Samaritans were half-breeds and they didn't worship God right in the Jewish mind. Now Jesus is going to be talking to a lawyer who thinks that way. And that's the context 
of the story. And he says this in Luke 10, 25-37. He says, Then an expert in the law, which is also known as a... Scribe, good job. Stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Very common question that you might ask to a new new rabbi. And it was kind of like a, what are you all about? Right? Like, what kind of a rabbi are you? By how you answer this question, we'll kind of know what camp of theology you have going on here. It's kind of where he's at. So Jesus answered, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? Right? I mean, you're an expert in the Mosaic law, right? What do you think? So it turns it back on him. How do you read the Torah? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, You have answered correctly, told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to just himself, the lawyer, the scribe, asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, about a 19-mile rugged hike with about an 800-foot elevation gap going on. So this is a beefy hike. Have you guys ever hiked Mount Whitney? You're about like four miles shy of Mount Whitney at this point, up about the same elevation. It's a gnarly hike. Jesus took up the question and And said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled. Took off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Jesus asked the scribe, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the scribe said, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, you go and do the same. So a lot going on in this story. It's kind of a, a very dramatic Cool story, very familiar story. In California, we have a law named after this story. Do you guys know that? The Good Samaritan Law, right? We, we, we all know what the Good Samaritan, it's like the Golden Rule and the Good Samaritan. We just think those came out of nowhere. No, those came out of the Bible, Jesus' teachings, right? We know that as Christians. But, but these are very familiar stories. But the pow- the, the, I would suggest that the parable, amongst other things, is about the power of God to shape how we love. So this guy asks, how do I inherit the the kingdom of God? And Jesus goes, well, you tell me. And he says a very standard answer. Jewish people understood this. Like, it's important that you love God and that you love 
your neighbor. Those are really important. Uh, he's, a, he's a scribe, and so he's an expert on the first five books of the Bible. It just happens that the Shema comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then in verse 5, it goes, uh, so You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he kind of combines that with Leviticus, another book of the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus 19 clearly says that you need to love your neighbor so he gets it. They already get it. And so Jesus goes, this is, this is what you've answered correctly, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. But then he's like, yeah, but who's, my, who's really my neighbor like? What's that actually look like in action? And then Jesus tells him this story. And the story would have offended him. Wait, like my buddies do the wrong thing and then those half-bloods do the right thing in the story, but he... But he, but he gets it at the end, right? He goes, yeah, it's the, it's the one who acts. He doesn't say the Samaritan, right? He can't, he can't choke that out of his mouth. They go, it was the Samaritan. He goes, oh, it's the one who had compassion, right? <laughs> kind of gives you an idea where he's at. And the parable is about the power of the gospel to shape how we love. And the parable teaches us at least three things that we're going to look at this morning that are relevant to us. And it's this, that first, we need to love God first, and love others too. Right? That's the first thing that we'll learn. And then, and then the second thing that we're going to learn is the charge is to be a good neighbor. To be a good neighbor. And then thirdly, we're going to learn that love is a rugged commitment. That love is a rugged commitment. So let's look at these in your notes one at a time. And the first thing in your notes is this, that, that we're going to love God and love our neighbor. Very old school thinking the Jewish people already knew this before Jesus even came. Moses taught it and they caught it, right? It was taught, it was caught, but by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it was limited. It had limits. It had conditions. And so Jesus is going to remove those conditions, I would say. And here's the thing. uh, Some people... And in your notes, note, I wanted you to write in the and, because that's important. The and is the important part in the love God and love your neighbor. Because some people, see, they try to love God, or they think they're loving God, but they're really not very good at loving their neighbor. You ever met that guy? Don't point at him or her, right? I was at a coffee shop not that long ago at work, we went into the coffee shop, the guys at, uh, on the fire department and myself, and, and it was interesting because um, I, I'm a, I work as a pastor here, as, a, as our, our lead pastor, and so I understand going to a coffee shop and studying, and so this guy looked very familiar, not because I'd seen him before, but, but by his actions, I'm like, I, that could be me, right? And so he's sitting at a table, he's got books all over the place, he's got his Bible out, I don't know if he's a pastor or not. But he looked like he was studying for something. He was deep into it. I'm like, oh, cool, right? Like, great place to study, great environment. I wonder what he's going to be teaching on. I didn't get a chance to go talk to him. Went to the bathroom, come out. He's over yelling at the barista. No joke. He's yelling at the barista. And and I was thinking, like, I don't know if he's having a bad day. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm sure I've yelled at the barista. Not the barista, but I've had my bad moments. I'm not... Perfect. I, I could have been me. That's the scary part. But the reality is, is just doesn't fit, right? You're like loving God with your study. And then what are you going to teach on? The Good Samaritan this week? And now you're being a jerk to the barista, right? 
It's not fitting. And yet in our, in our world, we see that all the time. People who are really good at, at being a Christian outwardly, but not inwardly, you might say. Or, or really good at being devoted religiously, but not really good at being good in the community, right? Great on Sunday, not very good the other six days plus 23 and a half hours, depending on how long your church service is, right? Now, we get it. We don't just love God and then neglect, neglect our neighbor. But here's the thing. Some also try to love their neighbor and not love God. I mean, that is becoming more and more common in our world that you can just kind of bypass the love for God and just go straight to love your neighbor. And then the problem with that is, see, it's, let me just say this. It is never wrong to love your neighbor actively. But the issue is when you do that and you start to think somehow I'm better than everyone else because I'm nice and I don't even need this God because I can just bypass it. I'm nice anyways, right? Why do I need to go to church? I'm already nicer than the people that go there, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, sometimes true, but not the point. So here's the problem. Both of these missed the mark on a gospel-centered life. And so the charge is very clear. Love God and love your neighbor. In 1 John, John unpacks this really well. If you want more about this, just read 1 John chapter 4, some of the highlights. In verse 19, he says this. He goes, he goes we love God. 1 John four nineteen. we love God because he first loved us. So we unpack that in the way that this is formulated out is this, that God loves us first, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, that God is the initiator, that he loves us when we were yet sinners, that God loves us first. And then he says, and the appropriate response would be that because he loves us first, when we remember that, when we recognize that in view of his mercy, like it says in Romans 12, all throughout the scriptures, because of our understanding and and, and the impact that that has on the reality that God loves us, we fall madly in love with Him. Right? And like, okay, so now I love God. And then he goes on in verse 20 of 1 John, he goes, and, and, if, and if you think you love God, but you don't love your brother and sister, you're a fool. Because you can't, you can't love God and then not go and love others. So the idea here, the full picture is that you need to, that, that we recognize how how wonderful God has been to us. We, we recognize how, how, how His grace works, that we, He's given us what we don't deserve. And when we start to love others and think we, now we deserve some credit, it kills the impact the gospel. The gospel makes its greatest impact when we understand we're not worthy. And then we fall in love with God. And then we go out and we're no longer asking the question, who's my neighbor? What are we saying there? Who's worthy? Who's worthy of my love? Just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. That's what this story kind of teaches us. And in today's story, the priest and the Levi, you notice, they pass by on the other side. Very clearly says, they pass by on the other side. They avoid interacting with... The guy who needs their help, uh, they pass by on the other side. Why? 
We don't know. Right? What were some of the thoughts? I mean, there, there are some possible motives. Yeah. Anyone have any ideas? Yeah. So one of the thoughts would be that they don't want to be unclean because the, the, the oral tradition of the scribe would have been that if somebody is dead, says he's half dead, he might not have known he was dead. Someone's dead and you touch them, you become unclean and then you no longer can go in the temple. And if you're the priest, then you'd be like, that could be a problem because that's my job. Right? So there might be a practical reason. Any other thoughts? They don't want to have anything to do with it. They want to be involved. I ain't got time for that, right? Walk on the other side. I'm busy. I got other things to do. Someone else can do that. I already do enough. It might have just been a busyness thing or an apathy thing or a, or a I don't want to get involved thing. or That, sound, that looks really involved. That, that guy looks like he needs more than a hug, right? <laughs> and some prayer. You ever do that to someone? I'll pray for you, right? Like, really? Because I need like 100 bucks, right? So there might be this feeling of too busy, like they can't afford to stop and help. Any other thoughts? Yeah. yeah. I might have been afraid that it was a trap. You know, someone pretending to be beat up would go back to beat the way they pretend. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty logical, right? Like, that guy walked, fell in a hole. If I walk, I might fall in the hole too, right? They beat him up. Why won't they beat me up, right? They beat him up real bad. I don't want to get beat up real bad, Right? I'm, maybe I'm being savvy. Maybe I'm being wise. Maybe it's the wise decision to go on the other side. All these things, right? And so the backdrop of this story, though, the backdrop is that we have a lawyer who understands things in, in that context of, of the law. He's a lawyer. And you have two witnesses. At that time, guess how many witnesses it took to prove something if you're a lawyer? It took exactly two. Jesus tells a story where there's two witnesses that both are examples that are supposed to do the right thing and they both walk by on the other side therefore the lawyer would have naturally thought one of them might have had a good reason but not two there's no excuse that's what jesus frames this there can't be two good excuses right maybe one of them had a good excuse what about the other one in contrast The Samaritan, the least likely hero. And Jesus describes at least six concrete, compassionate ways that he loves this stranger who is stripped naked. So we don't know if he's a Samaritan or a Jew. There's no way we really would have known. We don't know if he's dead yet or not because you have to get close, right? Check some vital signs, maybe. And he says he, he comes up to him. They go the other way. He comes to him, comes up to him, which means he has to overcome all of the same excuses that the other people might have had. And he comes up to him. And then second, he binds his wounds. Maybe he takes off his own shirt. Maybe he's tying up some uncontrolled bleeding. This guy is, from a paramedic standpoint, this guy is a critical trauma needing to go to a trauma center. Let's get a helicopter going. Get this guy to Long Beach Memorial. Right? Let's, get, let's, let's call base hospital contact and say, hey, you got a guy who's half dead. He's going to need some blood. He's going to need respiratory ready. This guy's going to be dead if you guys don't do something. Right? He binds up his wounds with what he has. It says number three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine. 
oil in that day would have soothed your, your ailment. It would, have, it would have comforted your ailment. And wine is like, you ever see like an old cowboy movie? They're like, you know, you get shot, you pull the bullet out, and you pour some whiskey in there, right? It cleans it out. That's the whole idea. He, he uses those things. He disinfects the wound. He soothes him. Why do you think he had oil and wine? You think he was woke up in the morning, I'm going to pack some oil and wine in case somebody gets beat up and i got to be the Good Samaritan, right? No, he, he's going to use it because it has a lot of different uses, right? He might have put it on his own feet, right? It's a 19-mile rugged hike. Maybe he needed that oil. What about the wine? He might have wanted to be happy, <laughs> right? Might have wanted a nice glass of wine with his sunset dinner. And he takes those things and he puts it on this man, and then number four, he puts him on his mule. Now, if you're a 19-mile hike and you got a mule, you're doing pretty good. You put someone else on your mule, where are you going to go? Guess you got to walk. Guess you got to walk. Puts him on his mule. He takes him to an inn, gives his time and his money. Two denarii are like two days' wages. Depending on who, what, what, what scholars you look at, it was maybe 24 days of, 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 of rent at this inn. Some, some scholars say up to two months, but a long time. He gives 24 days worth of, of wages, two days wages. And then number six, he provides for the care and promises to come back and follow up with them. That's what I would call above and beyond. Amen? That's doing everything that you possibly can for this guy who you don't even know. And, and so the lawyer's question is, is, who is my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? And how does Jesus answer? Does he go, the Samaritan's your neighbor? No, he goes, no, the better question is, how do I be a good neighbor? You're asking the wrong question. Who's my neighbor? No, how do I be a good neighbor? And the lawyer is in the rock and the hard place. He's like, well, my two buddies obviously didn't do the right thing. I can't justify them. I can't bring it out of my mouth to say the word Samaritan, right? So he chokes out the compassionate one. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, you're right. Well, I knew that all along. I made up the story, right? You're right. Now you go do in the same, right? So there's this, this beautiful idea that we need to love God. And if we do love God, we're not going to be asking questions like, who do I have to love? We're just going to be loving. We're just going to be loving our neighbor. And nobody's going to not fit the bill of neighbor anymore. Because we weren't worthy of God's love. So why would we hold back or start judging who's worthy of us loving them it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the equation. So he says, be a compassionate neighbor. Be a compassionate neighbor. But here's the thing. God loved us. How many of this, you, this is your story? God loved us when we were a train wreck and we were not worthy of his love. Anyone else? God loved us when we were, God loved me when I was a train wreck, right? I was a train wreck and God loved me and he saved me. And now I'm a train wreck who's loved by God and, and out there just responding by trying to love other train wrecks. And if you, hear God, if you hear that God loves you, here's the thing. 
If you ever hear that God loves you, and you're like, you know what, that kind of makes sense. You don't understand the gospel, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's the point. That's the problem is you start going like, I'm doing good things out there and I'm loving people without God, even better than the people who say they love God, right? And then you're like, oh, I don't guess I don't need God. And the reality is, is that we all need God and that he loves us beyond what we ever deserve. And the response should be, what should the response be? To love others with this reckless, beautiful, unconditional love. So the response is not to evaluate everyone to see if they're worthy of your love. It's just a love. And to be a compassionate neighbor to everyone. And of course, everyone knows that you're supposed to love your neighbor and be nice. Anyone ever not know that? Like when someone goes, hey, you should be nice to people. And you're like, that is a super good idea. I never thought about that. <laughs> right? Well, we, we, we get it. But, but what we don't get and what this story reveals is the motive, the motive For loving everybody is the way we've been loved. And if you don't understand that, if you lose sight of that, if you don't grasp that, then the gospel doesn't work, does it? So how does the gospel work? Gospel has to work like this. We recognize we're not worthy. Paul says this profound thing to Timothy at the end of his life. It's interesting. I don't know if uh, Paul's motive. He wrote a lot of letters. First uh, Timothy was kind of at the end, maybe, maybe one of his, his later. If you look in Galatians and, and some of his other letters, he's really like, you know, you know who I am, right? Like, I was a train wreck, but God saved me. Now I'm going around doing rad things, right? For God, right? I'm worthy. You should have some authority, but I'm humble, right? And then at the end, for whatever reason, he's like, here, look, Timothy, here's the deal. I can't be uh, totally confident about everything in this world. This world's crazy. don't understand everything, but I can be confident of this, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, of which I am the worst. That's a guy who understands I'm the worst sinner in the room. You think he ever yells at a barista? If he did, it's because he forgot that lesson that he taught to Timothy. But as long as we have that on our mind, I'm the worst sinner in the room then guess what? We treat everybody like they're just as unworthy as me, but, but with grace. So the scribe wants some clarification on who exactly is that he has to love. And Jesus is like, why don't you just be like the Samaritan, the least likely hero, and love unconditionally, radically, above and beyond, without conditions. Why don't you just be like that? Go and do the same. So we're, we're called to, to, to respond in grace. And grace is what? Grace means we got more than we deserved. Right? We're saved by grace, which means we're saved and we didn't deserve it. We're treated better than we deserve. We're treated better than we deserve. It's important because one of the, the enemy's schemes of this day, my own life especially, is the word entitlement. We're entitled to everything, right? I deserve it. What happens when, you're in, when your baseline for life is entitlement? How are you ever going to be thankful for anything? I mean, thanks for giving me what I deserve, right? God, thank you for giving me uh, love. I mean, I'm here, right? I'm worshiping you. 
right? Like entitlement steals the gospel. Entitlement steals the gospel. You don't deserve it. Period. And so if you are here and you feel like, man, I got a checkered past. If you ever feel like I'm so unworthy of anything, I'm a mess. I got to fix myself before I can get back in the game. You're a perfect candidate to be a good Samaritan, to be the hero of the story. You're a great you're a great, in a great place to be used by God. And if you are in that place where you're like, you know what? Maybe some entitlement has crept in. Maybe I've lost the joy of my salvation, like it says in Psalm 51. Maybe I forgot how deep of a train wreck I was in. Maybe I forgot. Maybe this morning is a time for you just to lay that at Jesus' feet. So maybe if you feel unworthy, you need to lay that at Jesus' feet and say, but you say I'm worthy, so you're probably smarter than me, right, God? Maybe if you feel a little worthy, you need to lay that at the cross and say, no, no, you know what? I totally forgot I'm not worthy at all of any of the love that you've given me. And what does that do? The gospel now becomes the greatest leveling ground on the planet becomes the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And it becomes the starting point of recognizing He loves us. We fall in love with Him. That becomes our overriding motivation. No excuse gets in the way of that motivation. And we just love radically others. And so the last thing that we'll see in our notes is this, that love is a rugged Commitment. We'll have the worship team uh, come back up. I'll have the worship team come back up, and we'll look at the fact that love is a rugged commitment. So the compassionate Samaritan overcomes every excuse, right? He takes a great risk to love his neighbor. What are some of the risks of loving people well? They don't love you back, rejection, getting hurt, right? Getting used, right? Having them take advantage of you. There's a lot. Love's hard. How many of you guys have realized, man, this is a dangerous world? I love that Jesus tells this story and the fact that this is a dangerous 19-mile hike from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? We're hiking up Mount Whitney. There's like turns at every corner, there's a, a, it's a bad neighborhood. Like when you, drive, when you drive the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, your, your dad looks at you and he's like, hey, roll them up, <laughs> right? You're going through the ghetto of, of their, their area, known gang members and terrorists, like people being jacked. You look at my Facebook all the time. I'm like, man, bad news. Someone got jacked, carjacked, mule jacked at the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a dangerous place. Why do they go this dangerous route? There's no other way. You ever feel like that? I mean, what are you going to do? The world's a dangerous place. What are you going to do? Hide in a hole? You got to live. You got to walk the road. You got to walk the dangerous road. You're going to come up on this guy. You don't even know him. Could have been like, hey, I don't even know you. (laughs) Anyone going to be like, well, if, if it was your buddy, right, then that's really bad. If it's someone you don't know that well, maybe you deserved it. 
right? You could make all kinds of excuses, but this, this, he takes a great risk to be a good neighbor. He gives up his comfort, he gives up his comfort for the comfort of a stranger. His money, his time, his mule, his clothes, his wine, his oil, right? He says he's going to come back, his future schedule. He spends his money, gives his seat, gives his time. He follows up until the act of love is complete. This is a rugged commitment. So as we prepare to worship God, I just want to remind us of one thing. The the way that the Bible talks about uh, God's relationship to us is also a rugged commitment. It's called a covenant. Covenant is a rugged commitment. And when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I just want to, for a moment, wherever you're at, I just want to lay before you this leveling ground. This, 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 this recapitulation of our souls. As we prepare to respond, let's, let's take a moment and just think about the rugged commitment of God in our lives, in our stories. Let's think about his sacrifice on the cross. Let's take a moment to just lay down any entitlement that might have crept in or any unworthiness. Maybe you had a horrible week and you're like, I'm not worthy. It was never about how worthy you were, was it? It was all about how worthy he was and how much he loved us and how much he risked and how much he overcame, and how many excuses he had, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Why? Because he loves us, and he wanted to. And let's take a moment to remember what grace really is. Completely undeserved. And let's think about this. In many ways, we're the ones left dead on the side of the road, right, man? And Jesus is the one that risked everything to come heal us. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.